Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, 2 Kings chapter 21. Okay, good morning. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 21. Now we're going to be doing quite a bit of reading, a lot of referencing today from this chapter as well as its parallel uh, that's located in 2 Chronicles 33. So you may want to bookmark that chapter. Now Manasseh is the current king of Judah, having replaced his deceased father, the former king of Judah, Hizkiah, Hezekiah. And Manasseh is, hands down, the most wicked king yet to rule the southern kingdom. And now, although we're told that he became king at the tender age of 12 years old, in fact, he co-ruled with his father Hezekiah for a full decade until he became the sole ruler of Judah at 22 years of age when Hezekiah died. The first half of 2 Kings 21 spells out a long list of terrible sins committed by Manasseh and his behavior, his decisions were appalling as he essentially set about to undo every good thing his father had done. We briefly touched on this last time by saying that part of the reason for this intentional reversal of policy by Manasseh was due to the morally bankrupt nature of Judah's society at that time. Now Hezekiah essentially forced his reforms upon his people. And even though it was surely the right thing to do, it had the effect of not being able to force a godly brand of morality on corrupt and unwilling hearts and expect much more than an illusion of true change. What is required is for people to have a change of nature, not merely a change of rules. Hezekiah could enforce rules, but he couldn't enforce a change in people's natures. So, in harmony with the tone of this chapter, it seems that all Manasseh did was to enact policies that pleased the bulk of his people, because it released them from Hezekiah's righteous regulations that most of them didn't even want to be encumbered with. Now, this matter is discussed from a slightly different perspective in the New Testament in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 5, 19 through 23, you don't have to turn there, just, just hear it. It is perfectly evident from what the old nature does. It expresses itself in sexual immorality, in impurity and indecency, involvement with the occult and with drugs, in feuding and fighting and becoming jealous and getting angry and selfish ambition, factionalism, intrigue, envy, and drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, and I warn you now, as I have warned you before, those who do such things will have no share in the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control, nothing in the Torah stands against such things. Now notice how neatly those characteristics listed as the fruits of the old nature line up with the listing of all these immoral policies that Manasseh reintroduced to the people of Judah. Thus, despite Melech Hizkiah's, King Hezekiah's, wholehearted attempt to pull the people of Judah away from their backslidden path and on 
the surface, it sort of appeared as if it was working. Their hearts and minds stayed firmly rooted to their old nature. So when Manasseh took the throne, he merely gave the people what they wanted. And certainly he had his opponents, who indeed had been profoundly affected by King Hezekiah's righteous reign, and so they submitted to a holy voice. And that's what's meant by 2 Kings 21.16, where it says, Moreover, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he flooded Jerusalem from one end to the other. This in addition to his sin through which he caused Judah to sin by doing what is evil from Adonai's perspective. Now as proof that the deteriorated moral state of the average Judahite can't be laid exclusively at King Manasseh's feet and that the Lord held the common citizens accountable for their choices and their inner thoughts are the words of verses 8 and 9 where it says, Also I will not have the feet of Israel wander any longer out of the land which I gave their ancestors, if only they will take heed to obey my every order I have given them, and live in accordance with all the Torah that my servant Moses has ordered them to obey. But they did not take heed. And Manasseh misled them into doing even worse things than the nations Adonai had destroyed ahead of the people of Israel. The key word is they. They did not take heed, meaning the people themselves. And because the people didn't shema to Jehovah, they didn't listen and obey him, then Jehovah allowed Manasseh to mislead them, to doing even worse things, which in turn cemented the coming divine judgment against them that was to be their exile to Babylon. Now I have often taught that a great and terrifying God principle is that God will usually give us, as his people, the leaders we deserve. Sometimes in his boundless mercy, he will give his wandering people a strong and righteous leader that works tirelessly to lead his nation back from the brink of God's judgment. And I think that one of the most profound lessons that we can all take from King Hezekiah's reign and now Manasseh's is that even the best of leaders is incapable of changing the hearts and souls of the individuals who form his nation. And even the worst of leaders cannot change the hearts and souls of the righteous to become wicked unless the people, individual by individual, acquiesce to it. So, while leaders bear great responsibility in God's eyes for the corporate sins of their congregation or their nation, the congregation or, or nation is held accountable for their individual moral choices and behavior. Thus the Torah and the entire Bible shows us that while even the righteous will be affected when God judges on a national or a, a corporate level, that the righteous will not be judged along with the wicked, at least on an individual level. Well, let's reread part of 2 Kings chapter 21. We're going to start reading at verse 10 and go to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, verse, that is, I'm sorry, that is page 420, age 428. Okay, page 428. Adonai spoke this message through his servants, the prophets. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these disgusting things, because he has done things more wicked than anything the Amorites who were, with, who were there before him did, and because he made idols 
With idols he made Judah sin. Therefore he is what Adonai, the God of Israel, here, here is what the God of Israel says. I am going to bring such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that all the ears who hear it will tingle. I will measure Jerusalem with the same measuring cord that I used over Shomron, the same plumb line as for the house of Achav. I will scour Jerusalem clean, just as one scours a plate, scouring it and then turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my heritage, delivering them into the power of their enemies. They will become prey and plunder for all their enemies, because they have done what is evil from my perspective, and they have provoked me to anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt to this very day. Moreover, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he flooded Jerusalem from one end to the other. This in addition to his sin, through which he caused Judah to sin, by doing what is evil from Adonai's perspective. Other activities of Manasseh, all of his accomplishments and the sin he committed, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Then Manasseh slept with his ancestors. He was buried in the garden of his own house, the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son took his place as king. Ammon was 22 years old when he began his reign, and he ruled for two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamet, the daughter of Harutz from Yotvah. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, as had Manasseh, his father. He followed entirely the manner of the life of his father, serving the idols that his father served and worshipping them. He abandoned Adonai, the god of his ancestors. He did not live in Adonai's way. Ammon's servants conspired against him, and he put the king to death in his own palace. But the people of the land put to death all those who had been part of the conspiracy against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made Yoshiyao, that would be Josiah, his son a king in place of him. And other activities of Ammon and all that he accomplished are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Ammon was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Yoshiyao, Josiah, his son, took his place as king. <clears throat> well, the scriptures say that God spoke this oracle that's contained in verses 11 through 15 in his typical way through his prophets, but there's no named prophets. I had previously mentioned that only prophets whose records are kept in the Bible, who seems to have lived and prophesied during Manasseh's time, are Isaiah and then possibly Nahum. Now this tradition is that Manasseh was so angered by Isaiah's prophecies of condemnation against him that he had him executed. And that doesn't mean that other prophets weren't alive in Manasseh's time. And that they didn't comment later on and perhaps indirectly about Manasseh. There were those like Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Joel. But we get no direct confirmation of any specific prophet dealing with Manasseh. Rather we get this general comment about the Lord speaking through his prophets. And it seems to be that just as in earlier times there were many lesser prophets living in Judah. Who the Lord used to carry his message to the people. And indirectly or directly to the king. And that's kind of the sense of it here. The venerated Jewish commentator Rashi says that the reason no prophet's name is scripturally attached to Manasseh is so as not to give 
honor to this most evil king. Now, perhaps that's the case, but that's only his personal speculation. And we have the biblical record of other prophets called out by name for chastising evil Hebrew kings, so I don't necessarily agree with Rashi on that point. Verse 11 begins with an explanation by the Lord about why he is going to judge Judah as he is. Now, take note. We only occasionally get a specific reason in the Bible as to why God did what he did. So we need to pay close attention when we run across it. And notice that since the judgment is going to be a national judgment as opposed to individual judgments, then the leader of the nation is going to be held responsible. And the Lord says that because King Manasseh did these disgusting things, we got this list of disgusting things earlier on in this chapter, and that these disgusting things were even worse than the disgusting things that the heathen Amorites did. Now remember, God ejected the Amorites from Canaan and ordered them destroyed. That he's going to bring a divine catastrophe upon Judah and great suffering upon Jerusalem. The word the Hebrew word being translated in our complete Jewish Bible as disgusting is to'eva. To'eva. And elsewhere in the English Bible, the word is translated as abomination. So, from God's perspective, sins that are to'eva, abominations, are the worst of the worst. And in almost all cases, they are sins of humanity directed at God, rather than sins of humanity directed at other humans. And by the way, it really doesn't matter if what God calls abominable, many human societies now call good or just an amoral issue of personal choice, that we've made civil laws and national moral choices that take what God says is evil in his sight and declare it as good and vice versa. This changes nothing. Frankly, that's precisely the nature of what Manesha did and his new governmental policies that overturned his father's godly governmental policies. Now, I'm going to mince no words here. By our contemporary federal government sanctioning abortion, championing gay marriage of adults, gay adoption of young children, actively prohibiting any mention of God or Christ from our public schools, from our government assemblies, from our courts, and our current president declaring that under his watch, we will be a secular nation. And our previous president declaring that Allah and Yehovah are the same God. We put ourselves on a collision course with the Lord. That the majority of voters in our nation elect political leaders who openly declare that they embrace these terrible things. That's equivalent to the people of Judah who eagerly embraced Manasseh's ungodly policies that a substantial segment of the modern church stands behind these to'eva governmental policies, or at least they look the other way, is equivalent to the corrupt priesthood of Judah and Israel supporting their king's aberrant edicts. And please notice that the priesthood of Israel has gone completely dormant for almost 2,000 years as a result of their sinful choices. Well, because the Lord is, of course, dealing with Judah in this narrative of 2 Kings 21, Israel and Northern Kingdom is long gone, he now compares their spiritual state with that of exiled Israel. And he says that he's going to use the same standard for judging Judah and their capital, Jerusalem, as he did for Israel and their capital, Samaria. 
Now, using the metaphors of a level that assures something is straight on a horizontal plane and then a plumb line that assures something is straight on a vertical plane, God says that Judah is crooked beyond repair. So using those measurements, God calculates that Judah must be destroyed. Now, I also love the use of this plate wiped clean and turned upside down to demonstrate God's intended actions upon Jerusalem. See, the picture is a first an action of abandonment, but then also a preparation for a future reacceptance. First, the plate's wiped completely clean of every contaminated thing that was formerly laid upon it. All refuse and uncleanness is removed. Then the plate is turned upside down to keep it clean and ready for use when its owner deems it's time to fill it up once again. Now notice that the plate itself is not a lot annihilated. It's not even discarded. Instead, it's cleansed. It's sort of put into a state of storage. And then later, after Jerusalem is emptied of its uncleanness and its corruption and all those unclean and corrupt things, the people, are sent away to Babylon, God will determine when they've been sufficiently chastised and cleansed of their sinful ways and then the clean plate that is Jerusalem will be turned back over by the Lord ready to be filled up with kosher, clean food which are the cleansed people and the purified priesthood. So here is a message that while Judah will be destroyed, the damage sustained in Jerusalem is actually for the purpose of purification. It's only going to go unused for a time. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Now back in verse 11. God blamed Manasseh's sins for the coming national judgment. Now, in the concluding verses of God's judgment oracle, which is verses 14 and 15, he says that the people have also angered and provoked him since the moment he led them out of Egypt. And because they, meaning the people, have also done evil, they will have their possessions plundered by the enemy. They will become as prey to those enemies, same enemies that go that, that up to now God has protected them against. Well, the final indictment against Manasseh is that he killed many innocent people. No doubt those who railed against his wicked policies. Then chapter 21 says he died and he was buried with his son Ammon taking his place as king. Well, the writer-editor of 2 Kings, in some ways, some ways he does us a disservice because there's another important side to this story of Manasseh's reign that we're not told about in 2 Kings. However, it is told in 2 Chronicles 33. So, let's turn our Bibles there now and we'll discover what else there is more to know. Turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1217. Page 1217, 1217. Okay, if you're there, let's get started. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began his reign and he ruled for 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective following the disgusting practices of the nations whom Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which his Kiao, his father, had smashed. He erected altars for the Baals. He made sacred poles and worshipped all the army of heaven and he served them. He erected altars in the house of Adonai concerning which Adonai had said, 
My name will be in Yerushalayim forever. He erected altars for all the army of heaven in the two courtyards of the house of Adonai. He made his children pass through the fire as a sacrifice in the Ben-Hinnom Valley. He practiced soothsaying, divination, sorcery. He appointed mediums and persons who used spirit guides. He did much that was evil from Adonai's perspective, thus provoking him to anger. He set the carved image of the idol he had made in the house of God, concerning which God had told David and Shlomo, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. Also, I will not remove the feet of Israel from the land I assigned your ancestors, if only they will take heed to obey every order I have given them, that is, all the Torah, laws and rulings that came through Moses. Manasseh caused Judah and the people of Jerusalem to go astray, so that they did even worse things than the nations whom God destroyed ahead of the people of Israel. Now Adonai spoke to Manasseh and to his people, and they paid no attention. Therefore Adonai brought against them the commanders of the king of Asher's army. They took Manasseh captive with hooks, they bound him in chains, they carried him off to Babel. And then when he was in distress, he began to appease the anger of Adonai, abjectly humbling himself before the God of his ancestors. He prayed to him. God was moved by his plea. He paid attention to his entreaty. He brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingly office. And then Manasseh understood that Adonai really is God. Now after this he built an outer wall for the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley extending as far as the entrance at the fish gate. It encompassed the Ophel. He built it very high. He removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Adonai, all the altars he had built on the hill of the house of Adonai in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. He repaired the altar of Adonai offered and offered on its sacrifices as peace offerings and for thanksgiving, and he ordered Judah to serve Adonai, the God of Israel. However, the people continued sacrificing on the high places, although only to Adonai their God. Other activities of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of Adonai, the God of Israel, they are all recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Also his prayer and how God was moved by his plea, all his sin and disloyalty. And the locations where he built high places and set up the sacred poles and carved images before he humbled himself are all written in the history of the seers. Then Manasseh slept with his ancestors and was buried at his own house. And Ammon, his son, took his place as king. Let's stop it right there. Okay. The first nine verses of this chapter offers nothing new than what we've already read in 2 Kings 21. However, beginning with verse 10, some important details emerge, and it begins with saying that the Lord spoke to both Manasseh and to the people. In other words, it confirms that the prophets carried God's warning both to the king of Judah and to the common citizens of Judah. Thus, not the royal court, not the elders, nor the priesthood were commissioned to take God's oracle of warning that had been delivered to the king and bring it then also to the people. Rather, the people received it directly from the prophets. But neither the king nor the common folks would pay any attention to God's message of warning to them. Well, many years later, 
the prophet Jeremiah would speak of this in retrospect, and he would say it in this way, in Jeremiah 44, verses 1 through 6. This word came to Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, concerning all the people from Judah living in the land of Egypt in Migdol, Tachpanaches, Yo, Nof, and the land of Patros. Here is what Adonai Zevaot, the God of Israel, says. You've all seen the disaster I inflicted on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. They are there today, ruined, with no one living in them. And it came about because of the wicked things they did to make me angry, sacrificing and serving other gods whom they didn't know, neither they nor you nor, you, nor your ancestors. I had sent you all my servants, the prophets, sent them frequently with the message, don't do this horrible thing, which I hate. But they neither listened nor obeyed, so as to turn from their wickedness and stop offering to other gods. Hence my fury, my anger were poured out and ignited in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, so that they became waste and desolate as they are today. So as a result, the Lord did as he so regularly does. He used an army of Israel as his, his means of punishing his own chosen people. So we are told that Asher's army, now remember, Asher's the God of Israel, Asher's army was used to take King Manasseh off to Babylon in chains. Now until very recently, the standard scholarly take was that this verse was suspicious because the capital of Assyria was Nineveh, not Babylon. It made no sense that King Manasseh would be taken to Babylon instead of to the Assyrian capital. However, it's now known that the latest king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, took up residence in Babylon for several years after reconquering it yet again. It seems that Babylon was a difficult kingdom to hold on to. And every few years, Babylon would rebel, it would regain its independence from Assyria for a few years, so the king of Assyria stayed there to help keep control. So valuable was the possession of Babylon that it was viewed as a strategic asset. So, indeed, Manasseh was taken to King Ashurbanipal in Babylon. But then, something astonishing happened. Verse 12 says that his unexpected capture and his imprisonment shook Manasseh to his core. And he realized it was Jehovah's doing that his kingdom was attacked. It was Jehovah's doing that he was hauled off in chains to Babylon. Manasseh sincerely humbled himself before Jehovah, meaning he admitted his wrong. He accepted his accountability for his sins. And in response to his sincere repentance and change of heart, the Lord had mercy upon him. He returned him to Jerusalem, and he resumed his office as a far better king of Judah. And further, as a changed king, he not only began building fortifications and repairing war damage, he also went about removing all these idols he had ordered installed. He tore down the pagan altars he had built in the temple courtyards. He also repaired and cleansed the altar of burnt offering from the abominable sacrifices to other gods that he had formerly ordered to occur, to occur there. He even went so far as to command his people, that is just like his father Hezekiah had done, he used force in order to allow only worship of Jehovah within Judah. 
Now, what recent archaeological discoveries tell us is that Ashurbanipal was in Babylon in precisely 648 BC, and it was in that same year that Manisha was brought to him. But what exactly was the reason for Manisha's imprisonment in the first place, and then why did Ashurbanipal let him go? Well, it turns out that several other kings in the West were also arrested, arrested by Ashurbanipal and, and brought to him in Babylon. All of them, including Manesha, were accused of treason. Why treason? Because they all had some sort of vassal arrangement with Assyria that had kept them in power and Assyria from conquering them. Thus, after Ashurbanipal demonstrated his power and his control over them, by going to their own homelands, damaging their kingdoms, and then capturing their kings and bringing them to him in Babylon, well, now they better understood their precarious place. Assyria was their master, like it or not. They were vassals, like it or not. And Ashurbanipal would brook no disobedience, no lack of proper allegiance. Well, Manesha got the message, and he left Babylon to go home as a trusted ally and vassal of Assyria. The build-up of fortifications all over Judah that we read about in 2 Chronicles 33:14, that wasn't to protect Judah from Assyria. Rather, they were built to help protect Assyrian interests in Judah from other invaders, Egypt being a particularly troublesome one at this time. Well, verse 18 takes us one step further in regards to Manasseh's changed stance towards the God of Israel. But even more importantly, God's changed perspective of Manisha's spiritual condition before him. There it says that seers, Jose, Jose, in Hebrew, spoke to Manasseh in the name of Jehovah God of Israel. So the implication is that now, for the first time, for the first time, Manasseh was receiving instruction and direction from the Lord. And yet the use of the word Jose, instead of the standard word for a prophet, Navi, hints that perhaps the information given to Manesha in God's name wasn't quite of the same level of inspiration or intimacy as would have come from God's prophets. But there's not enough information to know that for sure. What we can know, though, is that Manesha made an enormous turn towards good, not just in his outward behavior, and God commended him for it. Even so, Manasseh was now a puppet governor for Assyria with little choice but to do their bidding. He was caught in a snare as now being a righteous king but having to compromise with the superior power of heathen Assyria. And this, this was all caused mostly by his previous sins. So to kind of bring it into the story of Manasseh, we see that he ruled as a thoroughly wicked king. In fact, he was the worst king Judah had ever known for the first 49 of his 55 years of reigning over Judah. And during all that time, he didn't know and he didn't follow the God of Israel. And the God of Israel didn't lead Manasseh or communicate with him in any significant way that we're aware of, but as a result of a great tragedy in his life and the sincere repentance that followed, Manasseh established a relationship with the Lord. And he lived out the final six years of his life in a far better spiritual state and as a generally good king. You know what hope that ought to bring for everyone, especially those of us who are older. 
Many people have lived their entire adult lives in opposition to the Lord, or in rebellion against Him, or maybe even in denial of His existence. Some have, have done the most heinous and immoral things imaginable. Or maybe they've adhered to the most carnal and foolish of doctrines. Perhaps some have made the most tragic mistakes, treated our families terribly, even intentionally done great harm to others. And yet, and yet, there remains that very real possibility that if a person will humble themselves before God, they will admit their sin, accept the salvation and lordship of Yeshua, and begin a new life of faithfulness towards the God of Israel, they can have divine forgiveness. They can die in peace and harmony with God and look forward to an eternity with the Lord. But despite the forgiveness and the second chance the Manisha received, he'd done irreparable damage to his nation and to his people. He had advanced Judah yet another step towards that day that the Lord would turn them over to a foreign power and have them removed from their inheritance the promised land. So the other side of hope for salvation and a, a renewed spiritual life even late in our carnal lives is that the damage that we did from an earthly perspective can't always be undone. And perhaps our personal circumstances won't be changed from something unpleasant to something happier. And, and our guilt for the pain we caused others might even intensify. Because now we realize and we acknowledge it. See, that's the awful nature of sin. That forgiveness in heaven doesn't always wipe clean our present earthly slate or repair the lives of others that our sin may have harmed. But it does give us new spiritual life with the Father. It can mean a new and meaningful and fruitful earthly life from here forward in the midst of our circumstances where such a possibility never before existed for us. And you know what? I have personally witnessed this exact thing many times in my life. Well, let's get back to Second Kings 21. In verse 17, we are not to confuse our current two books of Chronicles with the notation from the writer-editor of the book of Second Kings that there are further details about Manasseh contained in another ancient work called the Chronicles or the Annals of the Kings of Judah. The works that the writer-editor of Second Kings is speaking about are royal archives that have never been found. Now next we're told that Manasseh was buried in the garden of his palace, a place that at the time of the writing of the Second Kings was called the Garden of Uzzah. Now that in no way means that it was necessarily called by that name in Manasseh's day. Why was he buried in a garden plot and not in the holy sepulchers of the many other de uh, descendants of David? Well, there's two reasonable explanations for this, although neither of them can be verified. The first is that he was too ashamed for his past deeds to be interred in the same burial vaults as his ancestor, as his, uh, uh, ancestor King David. The second, which I think is the much more probable, is that the elders of Judah refused to let him be buried there, alongside the better kings of Judah. His past actions had just been too much. The negative effects were just too long-lasting. In fact, scholars are fairly confident that a term that is regularly used in Kings and in Chronicles in this approximate time in Judah, which was Am Aretz, Am Aretz, which translates as the people of the land, 
Well, until fairly recently, it was believed that this was just a general term for the inhabitants of Judah. But now it appears, and I concur entirely with this, that it came to be used as a label for a certain political and religious faction within Judah that was determined to restore proper interpretation of the Torah and of its requirements to the land, to the temple, and to the throne. Now this faction involved common citizens, members of the government, elders, probably even members of the priesthood. Calling it a movement might even be a better way to describe it. Much as it is with the modern-day Hebrew Roots movement, which is not denominationally driven, but rather cuts across most Christian denominations and socioeconomic groups all around the world. Well, Manasseh's son Ammon took his place, and he behaved as Manasseh had in his first 49 years on the throne. He became king at 22 years old, the same age as his father, when Manasseh finally had the throne all to himself, but his was a short and infamous reign of only two years. You know, it seems that every wicked king wants to outdo his predecessor. So Ammon outdid his father. Not only are we informed that he gave himself totally over to false gods, and that he reinstalled idols in the temple courtyards, but he completely abandoned Jehovah. And there is evidence that he put one of the idols inside the sanctuary building, perhaps even in the Holy of Holies. You know, it's interesting that it was his servants, the royal court, that soon killed Ammon in a kind of like-for-like -like retribution. Just as Ammon had betrayed Jehovah, Ammon's servants betrayed their king. And in what can only be seen as proportional justice, we're told that the people of the land, the Amorites, then killed the conspirators who killed Ammon. Now, while I think, well, while their reasoning for this isn't stated, I, I think I can reasonably speculate that because Ammon was a fully legitimate royal descendant of David, and he had succeeded to the throne legally and customarily, that his behavior was secondary to the fact that he was an authorized member of the Davidic dynasty. So nobody had the right to remove him from the throne. Nobody had the right to assassinate him. And the final notice of Ammon is that he was buried in the same place as his father, the Garden of Uzzah, not in the royal burial cave. So even the Amhorets, who avenged his death, recognized that a man of such evil character didn't belong buried with the righteous bones of his ancestors. Well, Second Kings chapter 21 ends with the notice that Manasseh's son, Josiah, reigned in his place. We'll take up chapter 22 and the subject of the boy king, Josiah, next time.